If I can invite you to Isaiah chapter 1, if you've got a Bible. If you haven't, uh, there's some Bibles down the center aisle, uh, so the people on the ends of the aisles will now look and see if anybody needs a Bible in their row, and they'll pass them down. So if you need a Bible, and it's Isaiah chapter 1. Now, everybody does love an invitation, whether you received an invitation to the baptism or whether it's uh, invitations to a wedding or a birthday or a party or a lunch or a dinner. Everybody loves positive invitations. Not everybody likes certain invitations, though, do they? So if you get called into your boss's office, that might not be a positive invitation. Or if you get called into the head teacher's office, that's definitely not a positive invitation. Or if you get a court summons for speeding or for something else, they are not positive invitations. So there are invitations that everybody loves to receive and invitations that no one wants to receive. Uh, and this morning we have uh, two invitations to us in Isaiah chapter 1. Two invitations that come to us from God through the prophets. And one is a negative invitation and one's a very positive invitation. So I'm going to read uh, from Isaiah chapter 1, uh, verse 2 to verse 20. And if you would like to follow along with me, you can do that now. Then I'm going to pray, then we'll dive in. All right, here we go. This is what God has to say through Isaiah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord and despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate and overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. And if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, and give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts, and I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me and I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. 
your hands are full of blood. So wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your spirit. And we pray that the two would come together now, your word and your spirit, and touch our hearts in a way that reveals to us all that you want to say to us this morning, both in, your, in the neg negative invitation and in the positive invitation. And we pray that we would go away from here more amazed at the gospel that you have done on our behalf in your son, Jesus Christ. Pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. So as I said, two invitations. And the first one is in verse 2. The second one is in verse 18. And in verse 2, God calls all the heavens and the earth to come to be his witnesses in a sort of a courtroom drama as he's about to bring a case, to prosecute a case against his people. So he calls all of heaven and earth, and that's kind of like a, a Hebrew way of saying and everything in between as well. So everybody has got to come because God is about to speak and he's about to declare some things that we all need to hear. And the first thing that we're invited to see in this first invitation is this, that sin is more serious than we know. Sin is more serious than we know. Now, if you know anything about the, the prophets in the Old Testament, you'll know that uh, some, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they usually begin with some kind of autobiographical information about the prophet and about his call to ministry. But Isaiah begins, after the one verse just set in the context, uh, it begins with this stinging rebuke against not pagan nations, but against God's very own people. In verse 2, Isaiah gives us this picture of how God describes the relationship between him and his people. And it's a, it's a parent-child relationship. And God calls himself, a, uh, well, it's implied that God is the father of this people and they're his children. And, and if, if we've tracked Old Testament history, uh, what we'll know is that from the moment of the exodus... Uh, that we, if you were here last week, you'd have heard about. In, from the moment of the exodus out of Egypt, right through now to Isaiah's day, God has been a, a loving father to his people, to the nation of Israel. He had brought them out of slavery. He had delivered them to freedom. He had uh, given them the promised land. He had given them his law to live by. He'd established kings for them. His providential care and his steadfast loving kindness is just seen on page after page after page of the Old Testament again and again. But despite this loving parenting that God has done perfectly towards his people, 
He tells us in verse 2 that his children that he has reared and brought up, they've rebelled against me. Even though he's conducted perfect, loving parenting, Israel has been a headstrong and stubborn and ungrateful and rebellious and wayward child. They've received so much from the hand of God in grace and generosity, and yet they've just kind of thrown it all back in God's face. Then he presses the image a little bit further in verse 3, where, he, where Isaiah compares Israel to an ox and an ass. All right? Now, if you know anything about oxes and asses or donkeys, if you're offended by my use of the word, um, uh, then they are not the smartest animals in the farmyard, are they? You don't see, uh, you know, guide donkeys for the blind, do you? You see dogs and stuff. The, the ox and the donkey are not the smartest animals in the farmyard. They're not known for their intelligence. And yet, Isaiah says, the donkey and the ox, they know who their master is. They know that you don't bite the hand that feeds you. But Israel didn't. And so he says, you know, the way that Israel has behaved in turning away from God makes dumb farm animals like oxes and asses look like mastermind contestants in comparison. Such is Israel's rebellion. Then look at the catalogue of sin, this kind of compendium of Israel's complete failure that that Isaiah records for us. So in verse 4, he says, They're people laden with iniquity. They're a sinful nation. They are evildoers. They're corrupt. And they're passing it down from generation to generation. Uh, They've forsaken God and turned their backs on him. They've despised and hated him. Verse uh, 15 then, uh, if you go down further, they've committed violence. Um, Verse 21 that we didn't read, they've committed murder. In verse 23 that we didn't read, there's been robbery and the leaders and the rulers have been taking bribes and then uh, oppressing the weakest and the most vulnerable in society, the poorest and the the needy, the widows. They have been um, dishing out injustice where they should have been Exercising God's justice. And then in verse 29, if you read on, you'll see that he caps it all by calling them an idolatrous people. People who are giving themselves to the worship of foreign and false gods. So this this is a compendium of their failure. This is a big list of all of the sins that Israel has done. And then in verses 5 and 6, he presses another image to our minds. Where he describes Israel as like a man who has been beaten up. That sin has sort of like mugged this man and beaten him up and destroyed them so that this man is left bloody and bruised from head to toe. No, There's no part of his body, when it says there's no soundness in it, that means every part of its body from head to toe is bruises and sores and raw wounds. They've been utterly destroyed by sin. And yet, Isaiah tells us, this is from verse 6, They've not done anything about it. They haven't got band-aids out and plasters. They haven't bound it up. They haven't put oil and ointment on their wounds because they didn't know they had been beaten up. They thought everything was all right with them, so they haven't treated their sores and their wounds. Such was the hardness of their hearts. They didn't see the predicament that they were in. They didn't cry out for help. They were just lost, as one uh, writer says, in the insanity of self-destructive sin. Sin is more serious than we know. And then to crown it all, in verses 9 and 10, Isaiah compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. Twice. Verses 9 and verse 10. 
the rulers of, his, of God's people and the very people themselves, this holy nation that God had called to be his own people, were involved in sin every bit as offensive to God as what had happened in those two notorious cities that you can read about in Genesis chapters 13 to 19. There was a catalogue of sin. They were characterised by wickedness and evil doing and To make matters worse, then Isaiah tells us in verses 10 to 15, they dressed all of this up in religious observance. They were like putting lipstick on a pig, if you like. They were trying to do stuff. They were meeting together for worship. They were making the sacrifices. They were attending the festivals and keeping the feasts that God had commanded them to do. But none of it impressed God. One bit. Look at what God says in verse 11. He says, I've had enough. He says, I take no delight in what you're doing. Verse 12, he accuses them of trampling his courts. Verse 13, he tells us he's sick and tired of the vain offerings, that they're an abomination to him. He wishes they would stop doing what they're doing. And then he says he can't endure their iniquity and and their gathering together for solemn assembly like somehow you can do both. And it's okay. God goes on. Verse 14, he hates what they're doing. He's burdened by their hypocrisy. And he refuses to hear their prayers. You see that in verse 15. He says, all of your externals and your formalism and your religion and your superstitious ceremonies and the religious exercises that you're doing, they're just utterly empty and worthless, even offensive in God's Sight. And in verse 15, he renders his verdict where he says, you've got blood on your hands. We, we use the term, we say, caught red-handed, which means you're guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. You're caught red-handed. His hard-hearted, self-righteous, evil-doing, hypo- hypocritical, idolatrous people, he caught them red-handed. And if we're honest... They sound a lot like us, don't they? Now, you might say, oh, don't put me in the Sodom and Gomorrah category. All right, I get that. Maybe. But they do sound a lot like us. Men and women today are just as sinful as Old Testament Israel ever were. We're perhaps just more subtle about it in some ways. Sometimes we're not. Isaiah chapter 1 is is like a microcosm of the whole book of Isaiah. It's also a microcosm of the whole Bible, if you like, that spells out clearly mankind's standing in sin before God. And Isaiah tells us that sin is more serious than we know. Oh, we can try and distance ourselves from Isaiah's rebuke and reject God's assessment of us. We could say, I'm not Sodom and Gomorrah. How dare you call me something like that? We're better than the people who lived 3,000 years ago. We know better now. But actually, too often, speak for myself, too often we fall into sin, into, or into thinking that sin is only as serious as it harms or hurts or oppresses someone else. And we forget about God. It's too easy for us to get our relationship with God wrong and fall into similar patterns uh, as Old Testament Israel did. So we live like unbelieving pagans from Monday to Saturday and then we come on a Sunday and we try to uh, placate our guilty consciences by raising 
hands that are stained with sin. Just like Israel did. Too much we think that the problems of the world or the problems that we face are those people over there. And yet, Isaiah chapter 1 invites us to see things from God's perspective. It holds up the mirror of God's word so that we can see ourselves reflected in Old Testament Israel. God is here to expose the nature, the true nature of sin. And help us to see that it's much more serious than we realize. And the reason it's much more serious than we realize is because God is so holy. You see, this list of sins from 2 to verse 17 are not just things that God hates. It is one of the most graphic descriptions of human sinfulness that you will find in the whole Bible. There's not a gleam of light amidst all of the darkness. It is miserable reading. And in verse 4, it really kind of sums up everything. That sin is not just things that we do against God. It's forsaking the Holy One of Israel. It's cosmic treason. It's more serious than we know. And then in light of all that Isaiah says, we're kind of invited to ponder an unspoken question. Well, then how can such men and women, faithless, sinful men and women, be transformed into faithful, obedient, righteous people who belong to God? And just at that moment of despair and of sensing kind of impending judgment that should come upon these people, God invites us to a second invitation. In verse 18, let's read it again. Come now. Let's reason together. That that could literally be, come now, let's, let's sit down and have a chat. Come now, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God draws his people to himself. He says, come, even in your sin, come now. Let's have a chat together and let me tell you something. Let me offer you something that is truly amazing. Though your sins are like scarlet, though they're red like crimson, I can wash them White as snow. Though sin has left a deep stain upon your life and in your heart, and I'm a God who sees all and knows all and forgets nothing, I can wash you. White as the pure driven snow. Now, we look on and I mean, the walls are a shade of white, I think. That's what they're supposed to be anyway. And the door frames are white and the screen is white. White is common to us. People are wearing white t-shirts and shirts. But in Isaiah's day, very few things were white. So to say white as the snow, white as wool, this would have got people's attention. And the second invitation helps us to see this. If sin is more serious than we know, God is more merciful than we know. 
Verses 18 to 20 are an amazing, generous, gracious offer, not just to the undeserving, but to the ill-deserving. We've stacked up a whole pile of sin and guilt. We're ill-deserving. We deserve to be treated badly. If you like, punished for it. Not just undeserving, we're ill-deserving. And yet God comes to those who deserve judgment because of their sins and he promises them that they can be utterly transformed forever. They can be forgiven and pardoned and redeemed and saved and there can be newness and purity and holiness and cleansing and righteousness that it's not just the end of something bad, it's the beginning of something brilliant. God is more merciful than we know. Now, if you're a certain age, you will remember the 1990s and the 2000s where soap powder manufacturers did adverts on the TV where they would get out a white t-shirt and in order to show you the power of their cleansing product, they would pour white, uh, red wine, not white wine, that would be stupid, wouldn't it? Red wine on it and they would spray it with ketchup and they would ruin this, red, uh, this white t-shirt with all of these red marks. And then the person would look at it and they would go, oh my goodness, it's my favorite t-shirt, what on earth am I going to do? And he'd say, no fear, let's chuck it in the, in the washing machine and then you would add Daz or Bold or Purcell or some other washing brand because we're not sponsored by anybody. And then you would, you would see them wash it and then they would pull it out and it would be incredibly crystal, brilliant white. And they would go, wow. That's Isaiah's picture here. He wants to dazzle us. For those who have got red hands, caught red-handed, whose sins are like scarlet, who are rebels and hypocrites, who can do nothing to get the stains out themselves. He comes and he promises 700 years before Jesus, I'll wash you white as snow so that not one hint or mark or shadow will remain on your life and on your soul. You can come and I'll cleanse you, he says. See, what Old Testament Israel tried to do through ceremony and rituals and externalism and formalism, God comes and he says, I don't take delight in any of those things. I, I don't delight in them, verse 11. None of those things. But that word delight in verse 11 is used somewhere else in Isaiah to tell us something that God does delight in. Just flick with me a few pages through to Isaiah 53. Because here we find that same word in verse 11. That I do not delight in these things, but here is what God does delight in. Verse 10. Yet it was the will, or same word, delight of the Lord... To crush him. And the him that he refers to is the suffering servant. God comes and he says, I can wash you white as snow. I can wash all of the scarlet. I can remove the blood-stained hands. Not through sacrifices of bulls and goats that I take no delight in. But because I have delighted I have willed to crush the suffering servant. 
just back up and see what this description that Isaiah gives 700 years before the birth of Jesus, how it describes him. Verse 7, he was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. That's a description of what Jesus went to at the cross. And then you back up a little bit more into verse 5 and you hear this. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the judgment that has now brought us peace. And we, and with his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah tells us in these passages that it is only in the redeeming fountain of the blood of the suffering servant that our scarlet sins can be washed white as snow. That Jesus is the sweet Savior who brings all of the promises of verse, uh, chapter 1 verses 18 to 20 to us. In his death on a cross, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf, he upheld the justice and holiness of God and the love of God is made known to us because in God's mercy, he has looked upon us in our helpless state as rebels running from him, as bloody and bruised and stained and scarred and crushed by sin and he is leading us to the cross. And that moment when we believe in Jesus, it is as though we have never sinned. In fact, it's actually better than that. It's not just as though we had never sinned. It is, we're in a better position because we are declared not guilty and justified. It's not that he just wipes the slate clean. He takes off, if you like, the black robe of sin that was ours and he discards it. And he takes off his perfect white robe of righteousness and clothes us in it. And we go from being black as hell to the pure Whiteness of heaven itself. Not temporarily, not in part, but in full, forever. See that second invitation? Sins and can be forgiven, iniquities can be covered, debt can be paid, as we've sung about this morning, through the precious blood of the suffering servant Jesus Christ and when he pays it all we don't have to worry that God is going to come back circle back around and charge us twice he's done it all and we have peace with God the raw wounds the bloody and the bruised sores of sin by his stripes we are healed. And this invitation is open to all of us. Maybe you come in this morning and you're visiting and you're not a Christian. And we want to say thank you for being here. We love that you did that. It's great. You know, it's hard to walk into a church that you're so unfamiliar with. 
But the invitation is extended to all who come in this morning and are not Christians. And the invitation from Isaiah and from God is come and find hope and life and forgiveness of your sins in Jesus. And come today because you don't know how many tomorrows you've got. And come now and find that all of those things that you have done that haunt you in the night, they can be forgiven. Now you might come to me and you say, well, if you knew what I was really like, you would, you would turn me away at the door. But God, who knows all things, knows what you're really like. And he says, come on, let's have a chat. Your sins are like scarlet, but I can make them white as snow. I can wash you white as snow. Here's what you need to do. In, back to Isaiah chapter 1. It's very simple. It just says this. There's two ways to live. You either repent and be redeemed. Verse, uh, verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. That's, that's a way, Isaiah's way of saying, if you repent, you turn to God, you stop from your forsaking of him, he'll save you. He'll bring you into the promises of the land of eternal life with him but verse 20 if you refuse and rebel well then you face your own punishment yourself the choice is stark it's repent and be redeemed or rebel and perish and I would encourage you this morning if that's you and you're not sure that you're a Christian flee to Jesus this morning and find that he is the savior that you've been looking for. Now, this morning, we're going to see three baptisms, three young men who have done just what we've been talking about, repented of their sins and turned to Jesus. They have turned from self and sin. They've realized that sin is more serious than they know, but they have seen that God is more merciful than they know. And we're going to hear from them in just a few moments. And then we're going to watch them be baptized. And that is a a sign and a symbol that we get to see with our physical eyes of an internal and a spiritual reality. The water does not wash their sins away. There's nothing magical about the water. It came out of a tap. I could show you where it came from. There's nothing magical about the water. But what it symbolizes is that they go down in their sin and die to sin in Christ. And they rise, having risen to new life, having had their sins washed away through the blood of Jesus, their Savior. And then there's application just for all of us that might be Christians this morning. And that's this, that Isaiah, I think he, he gives these invitations so that we can reflect afresh. Our sin was more serious than we know, but God is more merciful than we realize And he has saved us to the utmost. And there's fresh assurance and faith that should come as we see that all of our sins are washed away. There's not one sin that he can't deal with. There's not another time where he runs out of grace, that he's got a quota and and he's going to struggle to forgive us. No, he has power day by day, hour by hour, to continually forgive our sins if we flee to him. All those nagging doubts, all of those questions that we have, we can, they can be answered by this. I have washed you white as snow in my son. And the promise of being washed white as snow is not just deliverance from sin. It's, it's uh, an understanding that we can be delivered and saved from sin, the reigning power of sin and the, and, the, uh, and the raging power of sin. And we can be given 
we're given the Holy Spirit to help us fight. There's so much that we could talk about, but we won't. Let me finish with this. Spurgeon, the old Baptist victorious, chief of sinners, mercy. Christ is a great savior to meet the great transgressions of great rebels. I love that. Christ is a great savior to meet the great transgressions of great rebels. Then he goes on to say, this is a great plan carried out at great expense, guaranteed with great promises, intended to bring great glory to God. The plan of salvation has in it all of the wisdom of God. The purchase of salvation has in it all the fullness of the grace of God. The application of salvation is an, exib- an exhibition of the exceeding greatness of the power of God. He has done nothing that is mean or little in purpose, but great. A great invitation from a great God. Let's pray.